0: Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan.
1: And I'm Ahmed Suleiman, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa Programme.
0: Welcome back to Africa Aware. For this episode, we will be discussing the upcoming Ethiopian elections, which are the six elections held in the country since it began a process aimed at establishing a multi-party democracy. With over 46 political parties competing and more than 36 million voters registered to vote in over 40,000 polling stations throughout the country. To answer some of the key questions, I am joined by my colleague Ahmed who who is a research fellow at the Africa Programme focused on the Horn of Africa. So Ahmed, welcome to Africa Aware.
1: Hi Yusuf, thanks so much for having me on the pod again
0: pleasure as always. First question of course is what is the context these current elections are taking place in?
1: Well Ethiopia is going into its sixth national elections on the 21st of June this year and these polls are going to be the first test for the ruling prosperity party led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed Ali with the outcome set to have a significant bearing on the long-term trajectory for Ethiopia's transition. The federal government is committed to holding national elections this year after several postponements in 2020, chiefly on the grounds of the COVID-19 crisis, but also more recently because of logistical delays and security issues. These long-awaited polls follow on from elections in 2015, which saw the then ruling Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF, take 100% of the federal parliamentary seats. Ethiopia has experienced a combustible six year period following those elections with huge public discontent leading to large scale protests, which resulted in a shift in political leadership in 2018 when Abiy Ahmed rose to become Ethiopia's prime minister. Abiy introduced sweeping reforms to the previous developmental state led administration and pledged to build national unity and a genuinely democratic dispensation. His efforts towards building peace with Eritrea and the promise of his administration's early support for inclusivity and pluralism led to him receiving the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019. Fast forward two years from then and the elections are taking place at a time when growing regional and ethnic divisions are fueling insecurity across the country. The environment required to hold credible polls is hindered by a disastrous conflict in Tigray with the federal government ousting the Tigrayan People's Liberation Fund, the TPLF, which previously governed the region and which used to be the dominant coalition partner in Ethiopia's multi linguistic federation. Almost eight months of brutal fighting in Tigray has created an armed insurgency, with a mounting number of atrocities and human rights violations committed on all sides, including by Eritrean forces. The result is an increasingly desperate humanitarian picture with an estimated 1.7 million people displaced, the UN warning of an impending famine with 5 million people in need of food aid. So voting is not going to take place in the Tigraya region. In addition, Ethiopia's electoral board, Nebe, announced that elections in the Somali and Harar regions are also going to be postponed until September, citing irregularities and problems with printing of ballot papers. Together with Tigray, these three regions account for 64 out of the 547 parliamentary seats. In addition, the electoral picture is also precarious in Western Oromia, Benishangul-Gumuz, and a number of other regions, meaning that voting is not taking place in several other constituencies, largely because of insecurity and political disputes preventing registration and electoral preparations. So what we have is a real prospect of a two-stage election, which strengthens those who are questioning the validity of holding the elections at this time due to the country's internal dynamics.
0: Wow, a really, really stark picture you paint there. And as an immediate follow-up to that, because of the situation as you've described it, what are the expectations ahead of the election? Despite the picture that we've just mentioned, the
1: federal government and their national electoral board They insisted that there are limitations, but the polls are a necessary step for Ethiopia on its path towards democratization and that they will be the most inclusive, transparent and competitive in the country's history. You do have over 37 million of Ethiopia's 110 million population registered to vote. And there are 46 parties participating and 9,000 or so candidates running on the national and regional level. It does seem inevitable that the ruling party is going to win, and the chief question is, by what margin? As I mentioned, the parliament has a total of 547 seats, and the constitution holds that the party that wins needs to win uh, 50% plus one of those seats to form a government. However, with Tigray's 38 seats not included, as well as the other constituencies that we mentioned, There is an ongoing debate if that should be from the total number of seats, 547, or from the number of seats which will be included in the election. In the case of the latter, the winning party, most likely the government, the prosperity party, would not be obliged to win 274 seats to be declared the winner. The major advantage for most of the opposition parties have their constituencies in one or two regions, and certainly the majority are contesting a fewer number of districts. The Prosperity Party's biggest challenge is likely to come from Ethiopian Citizens for Social Justice Party, Ezema, and the national movement of Amhara, Nama, particularly in the Amhara region, as well as the capital Addis Ababa. In the Afar region, the Far People's Party will challenge the regional branch of the Prosperity Party. And in the delayed elections, the Somali and Harar regions in September well, certainly in the Somali region, the Ogaden National Liberation Front will have been expected to contest that election. Valderas for Genuine Democracy are expected to win seats, particularly in the capital, and they're boosted by the Supreme Court ruling recently enabling their leaders, including Eskender Negar, who remains imprisoned on terrorism charges, to be registered on the ballot in the election. While most registered parties have indeed fielded candidates, several major opposition parties in Oromia have boycotted the election, citing harassment and an uneven playing field, which has led to questions over the inclusivity of the polls. Oromia is important because it's the largest region in terms of the number of parliamentary seats, which is 178, and also the number of registered voters, which is over 15 million. Oromo's account for 35 percent there or thereabouts of Ethiopia's 110 million population. And the imprisonment of senior leaders from the Oromo Federalist Congress and the Oromo Liberation Front and lengthy ongoing court proceedings against them mean that the Prosperity Party is going to have less opposition in the region as well as also in Addis Ababa. The hope is that a strong electoral mandate Prime Minister Abiy and his party will encourage the government to accelerate reforms, including intercommunal reconciliation, and the government has promised renewed dialogue after the election. But given the leadership's track record of a lack of negotiations with key opposition figures to date, there seems limited prospect or appetite for genuinely inclusive dialogue, and certainly certain opposition parties, especially those who are imprisoned, those have been designated as terrorist groups such as the tplf or the romo liberation army and any contestation over the election results in the period before it can be completed after september uh, fully concluded could worsen the already damaged relations between the government and those parties with the risk of furthering instability and violence rather than providing a result a clearer result that calms tensions and gives much needed stability to the country and perhaps reopens the space for dialogue. Ethiopia's Western partners, including the US and EU, have seen their diplomatic efforts fail to prevent continued violence in Tigray and have resorted to increasing pressure by imposing travel restrictions and withholding financial support. The G7 recently sent a strong message following their summit in the UK. And partners have also signaled that they're willing to explore further sanctions the Ethiopia's government doesn't take immediate actions to stop the conflict in Tigray, including the withdrawal of Eritrean forces, as well as facilitating unhindered humanitarian access, providing accountability for human rights violations, and beginning a credible dialogue process. The Ethiopian government has strongly defended against interference in its sovereign affairs and continues to stress that its partners are best served working with them on these issues not against them. In order to move forward and build unity, Ethiopia requires a political settlement that can accommodate different ideological perspectives. To reach this end, there urgently needs to be an inclusive discussion about the future of governance in Ethiopia. Current insecurity and polarisation will not protect the political and economic reform agenda started under Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, nor create a sustainable roadmap for the institutionalization of democratic reforms. With the mounting internal and external burdens on the government, it's very difficult to see how any election result in itself can significantly heal the country's deep divisions, unify its communities, and appease its long-standing international partners, unless this is accompanied by a renewed commitment to ending conflict and a return to dialogue is the method for resolving the country's major
0: issue. Ahmed, thank you so much for such a succinct summary of the current situation ahead of the elections. Fear-headed by Ahmed, the Africa Programme will be releasing a series of outputs on the elections. Ahmed, please do tell our audience what they should be looking forward to. Thanks,
1: Yusuf. Well, prior to the elections, we've held numerous events on the political transition in Ethiopia. And that includes with a focus on the elections themselves, conflict in Tigray, and the humanitarian situation there. And our events are available for our listeners to watch on the website, and the Chatham House website and our Facebook channels. We're also due to release, of course, this podcast focused on peace building amidst the elections. We will also have an explainer video uh, by our associate fellow, Abel Abate Dimissi, and uh, he and I are also producing a comment piece which we will publish ahead of the elections also. Following the elections very closely in the coming weeks and months, and there will be further commentary as well as webinar events scheduled on not only the election outcome, but also on, on other issues within the political transition.
0: That sounds like a lot. Thank you so much for joining me, Ahmed.
1: Thank you so much,
0: Youssef. Now, moving on to the interviews, we were lucky to be joined by Lidette Titessi. Lidette tedesi is a policy officer at the Security and Resilience Programme at the European Centre for Development Policy Management with a focus on regional and multinational approaches to peace building in Africa in general and the Horn of Africa in particular. Before joining ECDPM, Lidette worked as an independent consultant where she consulted and supported research and advocacy efforts of various civil society organisations engaged in East Africa. he previously worked as a policy advisor of the Life and Peace Institute, Horn of Africa Regional Programme, where she supported the organization's policy engagement with the African Union and IGAD. Hi, Lydia, Welcome to Africa Aware.
2: Hi, Yusuf. Thanks for having me.
0: Honestly, it's a pleasure, and we're very happy to have you on this important occasion discussing something so Key in the region itself. And, and actually to begin, given the, the growing divisions we're seeing in Ethiopia based on regional and ethnic allegiances, as someone who has worked in the area, someone who has had a focus specifically on peace building and reconciliation, how important is it that efforts towards building peace are prioritised to ensure stability in the country?
2: Yeah, I think focusing on peacebuilding is quite important um, at this time, not only because of, you know, as you rightly mentioned, the deep fissures that we see in the country, but also because the political crisis in, in Ethiopia is sort of mixed with a security crisis. And this can easily lend itself to a, a security-heavy interpretation of what peacebuilding is, and could lead to an interpretation in which peacebuilding is understood as um, security enforcement, rather than something that has to do with building relationships between people, between societies, between communities, but also between the state and people. So um, I think this, this comes in at a very good moment in the in the history of the country where we should talk about peace building and i think this is important because over the years peace was indeed understood as a very security heavy angle and it was understood as stability maintaining stability containing violence either by suppression or otherwise quick solutions and we really haven't gone deep into addressing deep-rooted issues in ethiopia and we haven't really attempted genuine peace building in Ethiopia that is you know very relational so i think this kind of broad based relational peace building is what what we need um, in order to deal with the past and then also lay the ground uh, for social cohesion in Ethiopia
1: thanks for and i'm really interested in maybe taking that a bit further you know the the point that you make about peace being viewed a securitized perspective is really interesting and and the need to to really look more at the role of civil society the role of local actors in supporting peace and so I'd like to ask what your view is of this and you know particularly the role of, of civil society of local organizations and supporting local peace efforts be they inter regional be they inter-communal you know through dialogue and particularly creating opportunities and spaces for dialogue between uh, and among social groups where there might be problems. And of of course, you know, we talk about that in the context uh, of of the environment, which is one which seems to be increasingly polarised in Ethiopia at the moment, but one where you can see uh, genuine intercommunal rifts and the potential for further rifts between communities living side by side.
2: Yeah, I mean that's a that's a very good point. And I think under normal circumstances, um, I would answer that question by saying indeed the role of civil society in supporting dialogue is, is key in Ethiopia. But in reality, in fact, in Ethiopia, we don't really have a vibrant civil society, and especially not that uh, not ones that uh, work on peace building, because you see, for 2018, let's say, as the rules and regulations were uh, reviewed, the political situation didn't allow for a vibrant civil society to emerge. So, civil society organizations in general, but those working on peace building or human rights or advocacy in particular, were quite put under uh, serious legal and political strains. So, as a result, at this point, the call for civil society um, to do exactly the things that you're talking about, so dialogue, fostering dialogue between different groups, that call has never been clearer. But unfortunately, civil society is still nascent. Um, and we have very few initiatives working on interregional and intercommunal dialogue in Ethiopia. I think the need for civil society, which could, um, as you rightly mentioned, which could step in uh, at this point in, in our uh, political history, pull communities together, resolve differences through dialogue, really promote dialogue as the primary way of resolving conflict or differences. All of that is quite important, but unfortunately, the you know, initiatives that are working on this are just emerging. So unfortunately, the need for civil society to take space is great and it's, it's obvious, it's quite apparent, but the possibility of civil society doing this in a larger scale um, is not something that we see at the moment, but quite key. It's just that it would take some time, I think, for civil society in 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 a broad manner to be able to do this across the country.
0: Actually, following on from the question that Ahmed just gave and the really brilliant answer you replied with, what can be done to ensure or actually to support civil society to be able to fulfill those lofty objectives that we're speaking about in creating these spaces and actually acting as a, as a bridge of thought between groups and, and regions and communities that may not necessarily have those relations necessary for a, for a benevolent society of
2: sorts. Mm. On the one hand, what you need is indeed space uh, for groups like youth, both uh, female and male, um, and then also uh, women's groups and religious organizations as well to step up. So they need room um, in terms of the legal infrastructure. We have seen some improvement there, but indeed, this is something that requires um, leadership from these groups as well to go out and to say, you know, the country is ours, we have a responsibility, let's recall some of our social assets, let's recall some of our own resources and let's see how we can build on them. In terms of uh, young people, I think it's also Part of the issue in Ethiopia has been that there has been a lack of space. Again, this relates to what I was saying earlier about the legal space previously. But young people, and also because it's a big country, there's a lack of space to know and learn from each other. So without understanding each other's unique lived experiences and Narratives and this lack of understanding of and personal interactions with each other, I think, has created a sense of suspicion uh, from different uh, youth groups, especially across identity lines. If you do not know the other, so to say, and in codes, if you do not know the other, then you're also likely to fall into stereotypes. And in Ethiopia, we do see a lot of that happening. And these stereotypes also sometimes allow people to be driven by political agendas that they haven't maybe uh, fully problematized or they haven't really fully unpacked. So I think maybe creating these spaces in which young people across the board in Ethiopia have the opportunity to interact with each other and to identify issues that affect them all, regardless of their identities, be it social economic or Uh, religious or uh, ethnic um, or gender or other sorts of um, divides that we have across young people, if there were more spaces in which they could interact to unpack where they come from, what their narratives are, but to also not shy away from, you know, discussing the contested histories um, in the country and contemporary politics, which are quite sensitive, but which indeed need to be um, unpacked and, and discussed in order for us to go into the future together. I think these kinds of spaces, creating these kinds of spaces, would be necessary and would be important. And there are some initiatives in different parts of the country that are trying to do that and um, that previously were working on other things so not necessarily peace building but you know trying to step in by looking at the, the need on the ground trying to step in and change the ways in which they are working so I think this interaction between different youth groups and this availability of open space for a dialogue is quite important but I think we also have to Know that, especially when it comes to some segments in society, say youth or religious uh, leaders or uh, women's groups, for example, that especially when we talk about reconciliation, uh, we can't have reconciliation among youth, for example, without reconciliation at other levels, like the political level, for example. So in a way, even if we do center um, some segments of society, when we think about uh, reconciliation or peace building, we should really take this term, um, reconciliation or peace building, and scale it up. So we have to see it at a, at a national scale where it's broad-based ba- and not only people but or communities or segments of the society, but politicians, and um, especially politicians, are also able to sit together and resolve issues. So it has to be multi-layered and it has to be one that brings different segments of the society together. I think that is the kind of road-based reconciliation and broad based peace building and space for it that we need in Ethiopia right now.
1: But that's a really fascinating answer. And took from that in particular is the, as you say, both the newness of the environment in terms of establishing frameworks for civil society and enabling environment for civil society to be able to engage in a multi-layered way in peace building but also, yeah, the need to to kind of scale that broad-based approach up and include different layers of society. I mean, one of the things that interests me there is around the the new administration, of course, the reform process that was initiated in 2018 when when Prime Minister Abiy came in. Since then, we've seen the establishment of a Ministry of Peace. But are there kind of shoots of of that kind of peace-building strategy that you talk about. Are there structures that are being put in place? Are there networks to facilitate dialogue, both intercommunal, interreligious, among other groups? As you say, this multi-layered approach to broad-based dialogue that's required
2: yeah, so I think we can look at this uh, from different angles or different perspectives. So from the side of the new administration or from the side of the, the government, one of the things that was done is reforming some of the, let's say, draconian laws um, that had, for example, put a strain on civil society action. So the laws that were in place back in 2008, 2009, monitoring or sort of giving very strict structures to how civil society could operate, where and what issues it could operate. A lot of those uh, legal codes have been reformed. So this basically opens up the space for civil society action, including on peace building, which wasn't uh, permissible in in the previous uh, administration, for example. So that is one. But as I say. Because this is something that takes time. Uh, We'd only see the fruits of it um, in a few years as well. And then uh, the second thing is indeed, there are initiatives be it organized through um, Interreligious Council of Ethiopia, for example, or others that are happening at at the local level, communities, youth groups, also citizens, concerned citizens coming together and say, we cannot keep quiet. We have to do something about what is happening, be it at the national level, regional, or sometimes even local level. You do see those sorts of initiatives. I think it's more a question of systematizing some of these initiatives that are going on and the civil society led initiatives are largely constrained within certain geographies. Sometimes their initiatives could also come across as firefighting because there is trouble and different parts of the country. So, you know, they would go and um, have some sort of dialogue in, in one part of the country, uh, but then do not have the capacities to sustain that and then to have it with a long-term approach. So the question around systematization, I think is one where a lot of the civil society-led initiatives struggle uh, with. Uh, When it comes to the government, as I mentioned, there's a legal reform, and then the rest is, as as you rightly mentioned, activities by uh, the Ministry of Peace. But here, uh, we also have to note that since the new administration came into power, we've also had several breakdowns of security and uh, very urgent national matters that also required immediate government attention. So I think that has also diverted the government's attention towards, you know, responding to immediate uh, peace and security needs. Indeed, there uh, I do know that there is a, a process to have peace building strategy on the table, although I do not know what the current status of that strategy is. And then there with the Ministry of Peace, and then in general, the administration is also, because they are all undergoing change, how systematically ideas like uh, the peace building strategy, ideas like, you know, identifying and mapping out peace building assets in the country. So this is an activity I know they are doing, for example, uh, really uh, laudable initiatives that are taken up by the Ministry of Peace, there are questions around how sustainably they would be carried out by the ministry or other government bodies, because these government bodies themselves are undergoing institutional reform. So sometimes even when um, interesting and good uh, ideas and initiatives come under the auspices of the government, they may not really last long uh, or they may not uh, be carried out uh, fully as planned because the government itself is increasingly you know undergoing change so there's that but uh, as i also mentioned here with the peacebuilding interventions in the country uh, there are some budding civil society actors even if they don't necessarily call themselves peacebuilders um that are trying to do something about the context under which you know they find themselves or the things that they see around them but who are the actors that bring all of it together, make it more systematic, make it more uh, broad-based? I think that is still something that uh, several actors are still uh, trying to work out because the new administration came three years ago, but our challenges, of course, you know, span decades in the country. So these are quite complex nationwide issues that we're talking about. So unfortunately, there's still a lot to do. The, the need is immense as well.
0: Thank you so much, Lydette, for those really interesting answers to really important discussions around peace building and reconciliation in the context of this election. And actually, to go more directly into the election itself, given the challenging backdrop we find ourselves in, the sixth election in Ethiopian's history, what are the expectations for the polls and what do you believe the implications of the country's future political dispensation?
2: So there are so many things to say about this national election. One is the context under which it is uh, being held. It is um, an election that we are having at a key uh, or momentous time uh, in the country's history, where there is serious security concerns across the country, where the political differences are also quite strong and where... From citizens' point of view, um, stability, so not political competition per se or democratic uh, exercise per se, but security itself um, is not to be taken for granted. So this election is being held at a time where citizens are by and large hoping for stability and wishing that whoever actually takes power could ensure stability for citizens and that they could you know uh, go back to normal let's say so that being said i think this national election also has um, something to contribute to the political change even if quite filled with turmoil or um, challenges from the get-go from the, for the political change that the country or the state itself is undergoing in Ethiopia. And one of the things that I think it might be able to alter, or like one of the reasons why I think these national elections are important, is because right now in Ethiopia we have two political uh, forces, let's say, that have different visions for the country and how the country should be governed. There are political forces who do strongly believe in an ethnically federated Ethiopia in which um, uh, ethnic-based regional states have quite strong uh, powers vis-à-vis the federal government. And then there are those that say, first off, we do not need ethnic an ethnic-based political system. And what we need is a citizen-based political system. So these political forces would be, um, to some extent, putting their ideas on the market uh, for these elections. Of course, there are several uh, problems as well. But these ideas are on the table for Ethiopian people to to vote on. Um, And whoever wins could basically skew the scale in favor of one versus the other. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, this election is also being held at a time where there are several places in the country Uh, where citizens are not going to be able to cast their votes. This includes uh, Tigray because of the conflict there. uh, People in Tigray would not be able to vote. And then there are also other hotspots in the country where people are not going to be able to vote. So we understand the importance of this uh, national election, but we should also be cognizant of the fact that not everyone in Ethiopia would be able to vote at at this point. But as I said, it seems to me like the number one question in the minds of many Ethiopians at the moment is not necessarily how vibrantly competitive this national election is, but whether or not this is the election we need in order to go into stability, because stability, which was something that was taken for granted by millions of Ethiopians, is no longer taken for uh, granted. So really, national security seems to be the, uh, the question a lot of uh, voters will entertain as they go to the polls, the uh, safety of voters, uh, whether or not the election itself would be concluded peacefully, and whether or not the results would also be um, accepted peacefully. I think those are uh, primarily the things several Ethiopians would would be asking.
1: I'd like to ask you uh, about Ethiopia's relationship with its international partners. I mean, Ethiopia, is, as we know, has been a stabilizing power in the uh, Horn of Africa region, one which has been troubled by conflict for many decades, as well as a diplomatic hub in the in the continent, uh, and, and therefore a key partner of Western countries for geostrategic as well as, well as other regions. Uh, we've seen the US and the, the EU both long-term supporters of Ethiopia sending messages to the government, strong messages about Tigray and the need for a ceasefire as well as inclusive dialogue across the political spectrum. We've seen a reaction to that and and calls for non-interference by the government. What do you think the election and and the environment is likely to, uh, the impact of that is likely to have on Ethiopia's relations with with its international partners?
2: I think the pressure from external partners and how it's being interpreted, of course, there are different interpretations to it. But I think the the broader context under which, you know, external pressure um, on Ethiopia is being interpreted is from this light of, you know, Ethiopia is a very old um, country, which has very strong and very proud, um, long history of being independent. Uh, maintaining independence um, and with a very good understanding of how international diplomacy operates with a strong history of having withstood different global uh, political changes, but also national uh, political changes. And this idea of strong resistance to external pressure, wanting to maintain or maintaining strong notions of sovereignty is, I I think, uh, a, a key Ethiopian Uh, for a policy trend that sort of cuts across administrations. Now that having uh, been said, I think there are also serious security concerns, including with what is happening in Tigray, that have forced uh, several external actors to to speak out or to want to hold the government to account. But I think the the trick here is stepping on the uh, sovereignty, of the government or the sovereignty of Ethiopia as a country. And that, I think, the the contestation is uh, basically there. Uh, The Ethiopian government and some people in Ethiopia questioning uh, whether or not internationals have, uh, you know, overstepped their legitimacy to ask questions around accountability, questions around uh, peace and and, and dialogue in Ethiopia, and uh, external actors or international actors saying what is happening in Tigray or elsewhere in the country is quite a, a concern to them so i think coming or finding that sweet spot would be uh, quite important to move things in a constructive way and to move things forward i think when it comes to uh, this election or what is the, its implications on ethiopia's relationship with uh, the world as i mentioned earlier i think much more so than ethiopia's international uh, relationship for a majority of ethiopians ethiopia's national Um, Security and Ethiopia's national political infrastructure itself is, I I think, of a primary concern for Ethiopians and for the government uh, at the moment. So there is a, a great deal of need to look internally, much more so than externally at the moment. But I think maybe what could happen after the elections, and this would be something to follow is whether or not this election creates the space and creates the assurance uh, for some political actors that a national dialogue could be had. A national dialogue could be had in a way doesn't put into question who has the ultimate authority Uh, to govern the country. So initially so far some requests for national dialogue were for example put down because current governing um, uh, party or the administration felt that the the requests for national dialogue were equating almost a a power sharing sort of arrangement. So this inability to distinguish what is a national dialogue um, which is you know something in which you hash out some of the sticky points in, in the country and conflating this with a power sharing or a, a transitional government sort of proposal and this of course has sort of been an obstacle to push some kind of conversation around national dialogue who would sit on it and in what ways um, it should be had because technically there was a conflation of what national dialogue is and what uh, power sharing uh, arrangement or what a transitional government setup would be like so perhaps with this election because the election would sort of uh, validate or legitimize the authority of whoever will will take power, uh, particularly if the actor that will take power is the incumbent, for example, um, but if it is also another entity. Whoever takes power, maybe because, you know, they have taken power as a result of election, as opposed to some changes within the party, which is what we had uh, when EPRDF turned into a prosperity party, for example. I wonder if this election would clearly delineate who is quote-unquote legitimate um, and elected um, to govern Ethiopia. And if that uh, assurance basically allows for a genuine and open conversation around the need for national dialogue, what issues will be discussed around that, or that national dialogue, who will sit uh, at that national dialogue? So in a way, uh, maybe this election could be one step that was needed uh, for different actors to know what the political landscape is for the next uh, five years and what could in the meantime be negotiated and where consensus could be established in in, in between. But, I mean, we would never really know if this uh, will happen or not, whether or not, you know, there there are possibilities to forge national dialogue after this election because actors are sort of sure uh, who has the authority and who doesn't. Um, I wonder if that opens up an opportunity to discuss national dialogue um, in a really genuine manner.
0: Thank you so much, Lidette, for those really, really incredible answers, really, really providing our audience and myself and Ahmed, I'm sure, with uh, incredible insights into the current context of the election into peace building and reconciliation, and also into how the international community and the current administration itself can ensure the country builds back better in a manner after the election itself. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure our audience is equally as appreciative.
2: Thank you so much, Yusuf, for having me. Thanks.
0: And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa where We hope you've enjoyed listening please do subscribe to us on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review, as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa Aware. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan, joined by my colleague, Ahmed Suleiman. Goodbye.